Hey, Baltimore. This is Megan, and today I'm here with Vincent Lanchisi, who is the founding director of Everyman Theater. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Megan. Great. So I would like to start at the beginning. Where are you from? How did you get here? Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, a long, long time ago in a land far, far away, I was from Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. And... Um, uh, and so I, I grew up there, went to Boston College, and then I came down to this area, or actually Washington, D.C., to study stage directing, to get my, my MFA in directing at Catholic U. And while I was there, in my second of three years, it sort of hit me, it was crystal clear to me that I wanted to start a theater company. And not just a theater company, but... Um, but a professional repertory company that had the actor at the center of the organization. Now, sorry to interrupt, but growing up, did you want to be in theater? Or did you, I mean, how did this idea come to be based on your experience before? Um, I tried to, I had such a deep passion for it that I tried to avoid it as a career as long as I possibly could. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I knew from more reasoned minds that were influential in my life that it is a near impossible career. My father was a musician, uh, very successful uh, uh, professional musician and educator, head of the music department for the school systems for our town and head of the musicians union in Boston and uh, and a, a great businessman and artist at the same time and he told me from a very very young age don't ever go into the arts it, it is terrible for family life it's it's hard to make a living it's you know it's just really hard so, so you're not a good listener i right well i am <laughs> i actually wrestled with it for a long time okay. it wasn't until 10 years after he passed he passed when i was very young oh, so um that i find you know i tried everything i went at bc i was studying uh, i started with english then i moved to philosophy then i went to business and a good friend of mine said when are you going to just give up and seek your passion you know you love theater and so i i you know, it was a wake-up moment, and I went down to the theater department at BC and got involved, and, you know, the rest was history. But yeah. So, I, in fact, no, the rest wasn't history. <laughs> I still tried to thwart my own. I, I had a wonderful mentor there, and um, at the end of my senior year, I went to him and, and, and said, you know, I think I want to go to grad school. What should I do? And he said... You should take a year off, and you should go out there and try whatever you can to work in any other field, because it's so impossible to make a living in theater, that if there's something out there that you think you might be able to do that might bring you joy, you owe it to yourself to seek that out first. If after a year you find that you still have the burning desire to pursue theater, come back to me. Wow. And so I went forth and tried all different kinds of sales, jobs, and anything I could do that piqued my curiosity. And this was in Boston or D.C.? This was actually in Massachusetts, um, uh, about an hour outside of Boston. Um, And I was miserable. So I went back to him a year later and I said, I I just, I can't. I, I can't. Theater's what I want. Theater's what I love. And... My second question to him was, 
do I pursue a master's in acting or directing? Because most theater people um, are first introduced to the world of theater because their their first exposure is to seeing an actor on stage. So most people think what they want to be is an actor, and they start dis- or start discovering that or sure. training that way. It's the most way. visible right. piece of it, right? But when I was a junior in college, I had an opportunity to direct a play, and uh, simply because nobody else would do it, mm-hmm. and uh, I really loved it. I had a great time, and so I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." So I asked him. I said, "Should I pursue acting or directing?" He said, "Which one do you like better?" And so I like them both, and I, I said, "He said then you should do directing because you're better at directing than you are an actor, and it's such a competitive field. You have to put your best foot forward." So I, he was the kind of mentor that when you needed somebody to tell you the truth, he Straight was there shooter. for you, right? Yeah. And I, w- I to this day, I'm so grateful to him for being honest. I wish he were around so I could thank him, but. Sure. Um, but anyway, uh, so, you come down to so I DC. came down to DC. Uh, started there at that time. Some of the uh, professors there that really made that program famous were still there, and so I got to study under Jim Waring and Father Harkey and all these great people. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I watched Arena Stage a lot. I used to go to see all their plays, and having such a strong resident company there, watching those actors transform and play after play after play was definitely an influence for me. When I lived in Massachusetts, I used to go to Trinity Rep all the time, which is in Providence, and they too have a resident company. And I, I found myself going uh, compelled to go just as much to see how such a such an actor was going to perform. You know, Macbeth as compared to a comic role that he had played in the last play that I saw, I thought, you know, it's, oh my God, I'm addicted to this transformation. Mm -hmm. That is a layer that fascinates me. And then when I really got serious about studying theater and I was meeting a lot of professional actors, I realized what a really horrible profession it is from a practical perspective. That, you know, I remember talking to one of those great iconic actresses from Arena Stage who used to say, oh, this isn't a, this isn't a, a living. It's a, a very expensive hobby. <laughs> you know, uh, I really worry, I still worry to this day about the plight of the American actor that, you know, they spend 90% of their time looking for their next gig. They are not secure in any kind of way. No. And these are people that are so sensitive by nature, you know, in, in order to inhabit another persona, you, you really have to be vulnerable and open and able to do that. So to live in a world where... Um, you know, security is just not there, uh, is horrifying. And even the finest actors spend a lot of time wondering where their next gig is going to come from. And then I discovered that these people who are so brilliant and totally in control once they're in performance depend on so many people before they can get to that moment where they're in performance. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to write the play that has a role for them. Somebody has to produce the play that's willing to hire them to play that role. Somebody has to direct it, 
that you know works well with them. The other actors have to be cast that work well with them. There has to be the right set, the right costumes, the right sound, the right stage manager. It all lighting, you know, crew, theater yeah. to attract the audiences. Lighting. I mean, really, by the time they get to be alone on stage with their audience, you know, they've been through you know probably a hundred you know, people that they've been dependent on and had very little say in the process. And the more an actor is in the business, the more frustrating that becomes. I can see why you went the director route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and I, I, that's why I wanted to have a resident company. I wanted the company to, have, you know, feel like they had a say and that I wanted to surround myself with like-minded artists who were interested in digging for the truth and in, in transforming, total transformation and in, in the ability to, to embody another character, to be in an organization that would say, um, you should play this role because you'll shine in this role and then I would curate something, you should play this role because our audience has never seen this facet of your mm-hmm. personality. I know you can play that role. You know they can play that role. They've never seen you play that role. What a nice discovery it'll be for the audience. So every man from its foundation was a resident company. Yeah. Yeah. From day one. Yeah. From day one, our first show, we hired uh, an equity actor, even though we had, you know, nickels. Mm-hmm. We were rubbing together nickels, and we paid $2,537 <laughs> for one actor, and, and, which was like five times. You know, other yeah. actors were paid $200 for the whole run. I mean, oh this is gosh. back in 1990. And what was I, the first production? It was called The Runner Stumbles, and it was, on, uh, it was at St. John's Church on 27th and St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And they had had a fire like a year before. And so the main worship area had no pews. It had no altar. It had all it had were these three beautiful stained glass windows and these big high ceilings with fresh wood roof, a new roof. And so we went in and we did this play that was about, uh, it was based on an actual story, 1911 in Michigan, about a priest who was on trial for the murder of a nun. Oh, my. Like a love story gone wrong. And um, we lit those those stained glass windows from the outside so they glowed into the room and uh and we built the stage we built everything from scratch and i grabbed some of the best actors i could from my program at catholic u and brought them up to baltimore and um thanks to an anonymous angel who uh her name is Anne Lep- uh and Lep- um her last name Lep- Lep- Pagliara, sorry, hard to pronounce. I learned this 20 years later. I never oh. knew who she was until she died. Wow. Until she died. She was a woman who's, you know, was uh, lived in Florida, and one of my best friends, Dad, was a financial advisor in Florida, and um, she, her husband died. She had no idea how much money he had, and he was a blue-collar millionaire, you know. He just had simply made more money than he spent in his life, and uh, she an didn't idea. have any children, and, she had no, and, and the financial advisor said, you have to give some of this money away, or the government's just going to take it. And she picked you. And so she, when she finally agreed to give her money away, he said, where do you want to give it? And she said, I have no idea. You pick. And she said, well, you know, he said, most most people, you know, Cancer Society or did you love dogs? Right. Or, you know, she really didn't have any interest. So he said, well, I know this young guy is trying to start a theater in Baltimore. He oh, called me first and he okay. said, what would it cost to do your first show? 
And I like I had no idea, never done a play before. But I blurted out like with total confidence, ten thousand dollars. I like that was the biggest number I could possibly <laughs> think of. And he said, I'll be right back. And he went and talked to her about it and sure enough I got the ten thousand dollars. Oh my gosh. Which is how the first show happened. And then he came up to opening night and he said, How much did you go over? And I said, Five. And on Monday, the next Monday, I had a check for five thousand dollars. What? She, over the course of the life of every man, has donated over five hundred thousand dollars. Oh my gosh. She paid our rent and utilities all through the Charles Street years. And you never knew until recently. I mean I, I never knew who I knew who she was. I never met her. I never saw her. Um, when she died, they created a foundation, and uh, it was meant. It was just, the foundation was designed to be spent out in ten years, and um, so those, over those ten years, they they said, "What is your rent and utilities cost?" And they just covered that. That is incredible, right? Wow, it's an awesome story. So you never know. You never know where your angel is. Yeah, you know? um, but you had one. Yeah, she gave us a, a shot at life. So, and you did something grateful. with it, which must be good. And I wanted to name, you know, the theater for her, but her financial advisor said, "No, are you kidding? The woman never wanted you to know who she was. <laughs> Why would you? She wanted to be anonymous. Yeah. Why would you do that? Because her two things were, uh, her her two sort of." Um, things that I had to do to get the money were that I would never contact her. I would never learn who she was and I would never contact her. She didn't want to be recognized or bothered or, you know, any of that. So what what I did, the financial advisor said to me, what you should do is you should just get a scrapbook together of the first show. And I did. And I had all the actors. And I had photos of the shows and the program. And everybody, every actor in the show wrote a note to her. And I sped ex- this big book off to her and that's the only communication I ever had with her Wow! and heard from the financial advisor that she loved it but I honored that anonymity you know her biggest fear was you know all these people like win the lotto and stuff or people find out about you and then she was afraid everybody would be after her she just didn't want that oh my goodness yeah anyway she she cruised you through the Charles Street years yeah well you know now let me let me rephrase that she she um uh, she kept the roof over our head, although that didn't happen until like uh, a couple of years in. Oh, so there was so a bit of a gap. There was a bit of a gap. Yeah. And I will say that um, even though she was able to provide the roof over our head, and I'll be eternally grateful for that, those were really scrappy years. I mean, I, I have to say that on, on more than two or three occasions, I really thought, the doors were going to close on every man. I was sort of, I was like, oh, I could see the dream slipping away. Um, yeah, it was it was tough. In fact, it was one of those episodes, I think, that inspired the trustee of her foundation to say, because, you know, they were shutting the lights off. They were, EPGD was banging on the doors and I wouldn't let them in. Oh, my you gosh. Know, I was hiding in my office. It was pretty, it was horrific. But um, but anyway, uh, it, you know, it's an art form that's against all odds. It really is. I mean, um, when you think about the theatrical landscape of Baltimore, and, and it's, this has nothing to do with Baltimore. I could point to many other cities that this is true in. Um, you know, I'm not the only person, clearly, who tried to start a theater back in the 1990s. I could think of a dozen other companies that started up, many out of Towson, actually. Mm-hmm. 
out of the Towson MFA program and UMBC. Um, you know, young college grads that said, I, I want to start a theater. Oh, and maybe they weren't college grads. Maybe they were people that were, that were just theater practitioners that said, let's start a theater. And none of them. In fact, I counted 22 that started and failed in the first 10 years that I was at Everman. And because it's, it's a model that is near impossible to succeed in. For every, for every dollar you earn, you have to raise a dollar. So it's highly subsidized, and it's subsidized by mostly individuals mm-hmm. and foundations, and then a little bit of government. People always think government, but you know, God bless the Maryland State Arts Council. They've been there since the beginning, but still, they are striving to cover 8% of the operating costs. That's like an uber goal. We would all jump up and down if that got met. So it's just 8%. So when you say, you know, when you see supported by or whatever, I haven't had a grant from the NEA in 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. It just, you know, the government support is really, really small. It's people that make it happen. Sure. Um, So that takes an inordinate amount of time of nurturing relationships, of, of raising money, and it takes artistic leadership that's willing to spend their time doing that Mm -hmm. and it's really hard when you're faced with i I need to read six plays today but i also need to keep the roof over the head and raise the money to pay the actors to do everything you need to do it's a lot of juggling and a lot of artistic directors get into it and they don't realize that because there's no training for that nobody teaches i you know i used to call the chair of the theater department catholic u who i had nothing but respect for and say you sob and he'd say, Vinny? <laughs> I'd say, yeah, <laughs> it's me. me? <laughs> you know, you never taught me about what a board of directors is. You never taught me how to write a grant. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea how theaters worked. I never took a class in, you know, in in any of the sort of the administrative. Yeah, yeah, what's marketing? What's development? What's, you know, how do boards What do you mean a board hires the artistic director. I started it on my own. I was the one fending BG&E off. There was no, the board was like three actors that were on, you know, agreed to be on the paperwork so we could get the incorporated in the state of Maryland. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, nobody teaches any of this, even at the finest schools. There is no MFA in artistic directorship. Trial by fire. Yeah, learning on the job. And in fact, (laughs) as the organization was growing, the irony was I was hiring people to do the thing I knew how to do. Like my first my first um, hire was a production manager, mm-hmm. which I know how to make the, well, I mean, I thought I knew how to make the art. There's certainly I have more expertise in that yeah. than I did in but marketing like or fundraising or grant writing yeah. or any of that. So I had to hire them so that I could learn to do everything else. All the jobs that none of my artistic friends wanted to do. Do you think that's part of the reason that the other 22 companies might not have lasted? Yeah, I mean, you know, each company is different as the individuals that are at the helm. But I think, you know, yes, I think that there is a um, a misunderstanding of what the realities of, uh, of an arts organization are. And I think that we, as students and young people, look at 
uh, an everyman theater, and we go, look at that incredible resident company. Look at those great actors. Look at those great plays. They must have the best life in the world, and they're up there just doing their art, and that's what I want to do. I just want, you know, if the plays are good enough, people will come, but nobody actually does the math, Mm -hmm. right? If you look, I have a 250-seat house. You look at what you paid to sit in that house, and if you multiplied that by 250 people, if you weren't an artist but were an expert mathematician, it doesn't take long to figure Mm -hmm. out that that's not going to cover the cost of the theater. So, And and if you look at it this way, um, the Hippodrome or Broadway. Broadway's a better example because... uh, even though the Hippodrome does commercial plays that come through, and they're similar, but but on on Broadway you you have one production that's there for a long period of time. Anyway, look at the ticket prices. Oh, the only yeah. difference between Broadway and Everyman, besides scale, is that they don't do any fundraising. <laughs> All the costs are. Well, done then you get a Hamilton blowing s- through town, and it's sure what fifteen hundred a ticket. That's right. So if so every man to wanted to just pay for itself by the sale of tickets alone, you would double our ticket prices. Because right, because for every dollar we're we're yeah, earning, yeah. we're raising a dollar. So instead of you know sixty dollars on a Saturday night, it'd be one hundred and twenty, and nobody's making money. So in commercial theater, it has to go up to like one seventy five on a Saturday night on Broadway. you know, And that's not Hamilton. That's just a yeah. typical Broadway show. So if, they, if you want to make some money on top of it. So um, it, yeah, there's a lot of, and what happens sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes, this happens a lot with ensemble theater companies. So one way to go about it is that we're going to share the burden. We're all artists, and we're going to work together to put on a play, put on plays But we're going to, actors or artists are going to do marketing and developing, do all the the administrative duties of, of the theater. The only problem with that is that that can only get you so far. It's a really great concept, and it's it's admirable, mm-hmm. and it's you know in their eyes they're sort of sharing the labors to be able to do the art. That's how they're going to fund it. But you can really only they only get so big most ensemble companies until they come to the discovery that the only way we're going to get bigger is to bring professional marketing people in and professional development people in, people who are trained and experts in those because. Those are hard, you know. For artists to think that fundraising is easy is crazy, or marketing is easy. No, I mean, it's those not. are art, you know. Work. Those are arts in and of themselves. So, which require a vision and require strategy and. Well, ideally, you know, someone who has a deep interest in the arts but has the skill set to market right. or fundraise, which is not an easy combination of things to find. Maybe exactly. To have like that. the most famous ensemble theater I can think of. Um, is Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. And they did that at, at, at a certain point. They took an ensemble member and they paid them as artistic director. And then they brought on a whole professional administrative staff. And it wasn't until that point and some breakout productions that they started to really crank up their budgets mm-hmm. and build their organization yeah. into the the kind of organization is today, which is, you know, huge. Their budget's huge. And they do Broadway transfers and it gets kicked back to the theater and they, you know, they have evolved in a really huge way. But the ensemble's not 
running the organization. The ensemble's performing, is doing the award-winning work. They're, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, it's it's hard for ensembles. But it, to, every minute's separate, correct? There's totally an administrative, separate. Totally separate. Right. The artists, you know, the actors act. The directors direct. Um, you know, there are, we're starting an artistic department that's going to have um, some administrative responsibilities, um, liaising with the professional administrators. Yeah. So, you know, I have an associate artistic director coming in and, and, and he will be doing a lot of the stuff that I do in terms of interacting with marketing and development and, and, and donors and patrons and artists, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll have a relationship with the organization. We have an artistic associate that does some of that. But, you know, the resident company members, you know, they do things, they do things to help the organization um, ambassadorial things. Uh, We ask them to come to fundraisers. We'll ask them to do readings in people's houses. We'll ask them to reach out to the community in different ways. We don't require them to do it, but we ask them, and most of them are happy to do it. Sure. You know, you'd probably be surprised to find out that the majority of actors are introverts. I could could also see it being very exhausting to constantly be performing. I mean, everyone's taking your energy, so I bet... They only, you, need to relax. you know, every moment of a performance is carefully choreographed. In fact, when, as a director, I, I plot out how much time I'm going to need to rehearse a show, the general rule is an hour of rehearsal for every minute of play. Oh, my goodness. And it's, we, the goal is to leave nothing to chance. Now, it's live theater, so something's going to happen. A fly is going to be in the space, mm-hmm. or an audience member is going to have a stroke, or a cell phone's going to go off at just the wrong moment. Or yeah, it's live, so stuff happens. But artistically, and actors are human, so a line's going to get forgotten somewhere, and there's going to be that moment of um, uh, uh, spontaneity that's going to come from that. Um, but if the play is well rehearsed and the actors are on point, you know, there's always a recovery and there's a, an opportunity in every uh, mm-hmm. obstruction. Right. So um, uh, it is that structure that allows an introvert to become appear like an extrovert. Mm-hmm. Um, when they are acting, they are free to express when they are in social circumstances without a script and rehearsals, they might be quite uncomfortable. Not yeah. all. Every actor is different. There are extroverts as well. It makes but, perfect sense to me. But, you know, yeah, some of them are like, oh, my God, don't ask me to talk without a script. What do I say? You <laughs> well, know. Speaking of scripts. Yeah. Can we talk about the upcoming season? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Absolutely. I, okay, so there's Wait Until Dark, which uh-huh. opens September 7th. Yes. And then it's followed by Dot. The Roommate, Great Expectations, Los Otros, and Noises Off, which concludes June of next year. Right. Um, which of those, if you've never been to the theater or if you're a reluctant theater goer, would you say is the perfect one to come in on? Wait until it's dark. I don't say that because it's first, although it's first partly for that reason. Okay. Wait Until Dark is the scariest play I've ever seen in my life. Non-stop. Full stop. If you've ever seen the movie, it's a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll scare the pants off you. I mean, a woman who has an accident who recently goes blind, like a year ago, she's still learning to be blind. 
And there are bad people all around her who have infiltrated her apartment while she was gone. And there's a doll that has diamonds sewed into it. We're talking 1945, big film noir, Mm -hmm. you know. And so her husband, who's a Marine home from the war, and he's a photographer, is on a train, and this bad guy's about to get busted with these diamonds inside of a doll, and he drops them in the the bag of this photographer, and he brings it home unknowingly, and all the bad guys are after him, and he doesn't even know it. They, They call him out, and they know she's blind and they go after her in her own apartment so she has to level the playing field and she turns the lights out on them and there's it's like it could be the americans honestly yeah. not or no, it yeah. could be any other i mean i think the thriller genre is alive and well in all media i oh, think absolutely. you know we love it on tv we love it in the movies um and this one is a classic, and we're doing a special adaptation of it. So the original was set in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Big hit on Broadway. Um, it was a f- play first, and then and then the film. I think it's its 50th anniversary this year of the awesome. Broadway of 66. Oh, cool, cool, yeah. cool. Um, and so uh, it the new adaptation made some significant changes that really pay off in a big way. First of all, you reset it into mm-hmm. the 1940s. So now you get to lay on the style of film noir. So you have that sort of dark and mysterious. That's you know, the word I wrote. I read the synopsis before yeah. coming to meet you, and um, the the word that jumped out was just dark. It just seemed yeah, shadowy awesome. and yeah. Really, just I mean, you know, he's like good. a photographer, so the lights go off to make so he can develop his photography. And it's a basement apartment in Greenwich Village, and you know, these guys are in trench coats. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, this is old Hollywood movie stuff. This is, um, except it's so real, you know, at every man, it's so intimate with only 250 seats. You are right, you are in that apartment mm-hmm. with her, it, and there is nowhere to go. I was in rehearsal the other day, I was so scared I had to leave. Really? I'm telling you, I, I can suspend my disbelief like nobody's business. Apparently, I mean, yeah. you start telling me a story, even though I know how it ends. You tell me the story, I can get right in her head, and I can, oh my god, it's like, watch out, she's behind the door, you know, it's that kind of thing. So, I think all walks of life are gonna love it. It's like if you like to have your endorphins rushed, if you like to sort of lose yourself, it's funny that um, audiences respond so strongly to thrillers because, like I say, I mean, they know they're in a theater and those are actors and it's not real life. But there's, but there's a uh, safety in it, right? Like you get to be scared, but you know you're safe. Yeah, but you don't. Yes and no. So we actually had a Hopkins. Um, there's an article in the program about, you know, uh, there's a Hopkins uh, researcher that that's a story on what happens to people's endorphins when, when they go to see a, a scary play, you know? And it's, it's a real physiological event. You go through the trauma, yeah, you know, or simulate it enough so that your heartbeat goes up and mm-hmm. every, everything that happens when you're in a trauma happens like the in the theater. Like the tearing eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, Betty. And we love it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a little, you know, masochistic sign mm-hmm. that we play with ourselves. Or maybe it's oh, like please, a preparation for horror. something terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh-huh. my God. But what's beautiful is, you know, you're sort of scared to death for her and you root for this heroine and, you know, she's fantastic. 
it's Megan Anderson and people who know my resident company adore her, adore mm-hmm. her, adore her. You know, when I think about her career at Every Man, you know, she's she's been able to play a deaf a, a woman going deaf now, a woman going blind. Uh, she's played, uh, you know, she's played a Air Force pilot, a drone pilot. Um, First a fighter pilot, then a drone pilot, and the one-woman show called Grounded, which they're now going to make the movie of, and the Metropolitan Opera is making an opera of. Oh, my goodness. And she's going to go and do it again. She's been hired by another theater company to go do it. Um, it she's played some really, really great roles, and she she helms this ship, and you root for her like she was your sister, daughter, I'm mother. excited. It's great. It's great. And the, the incredible Bruce Nelson playing a bad guy uh, which is uh, a delicious thing to watch him do Mm -hmm. he reminds me of Jack Nicholson in moments in this play so that's a nice compliment yeah (laughs) I just I feel like and the director who is just a sure hand that is telling this story in a sort of magnificent way Donald Hicken he's been with us for probably you know 20 of the 25 well I don't know he's been with us for a lot of years Mm -hmm. and um and it's so great to have that kind of experience at the helm that's you're in really good hands you know so Mm -hmm. it's it's as a storyteller so it's as an audience member also there's all kinds of new things happening in our lobby which um it's a happening place to be you know you can get food from like uh two restaurants and a bakery in our lobby that's fabulous. Without leaving. And so you can do drinks like from dinner. my bar. I have a bar named after me. You I know, know. I've had Denny's a drink from bar, there. Right? It's really it's cool. It's my favorite place to drink. Um, I bet. <laughs> not just because my name's on the bar, but it's a really nice bar. Um, but also, you know, so we're bringing the... Uh, Sorry. Yes. Um, the- we're bringing the Lord Baltimore Bakery to our mezzanine. Oh, really? Yeah. So you'll be able to, I mean, their, their pastry chef is world class. So you'll be able to get these fabulous desserts. And she also makes like great comfort food, too. I'm sure mm-hmm. that there'll be like cookies like that are better than you've ever had before. Um, and she's going to do themed desserts for the plays. And, oh, really? And we, you know, we do Zeke's coffee. We like to go local. Everything is local in our in our bar. So, um, or you can, you know, get a pizza from Forno's and they deliver it right to you. So you I get your glass that. of wine and then the pizza arrives. You can have your dessert. And then Forno's. I mean, um, uh, Lord Baltimore Bakery, they're also going to have desserts to take away. So you could, like, have a dessert yourself at a demission, order your, like, breakfast pastries. They'll have it in a box waiting for you at the bar on the way out or your desserts for your next you night. You just need some, like, beds and you Hello? can move in there. I know. Well, we don't want people to stay. No. <laughs> Go home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we want them to come back. Okay. Anyway, right. there's a lot going on. So w- wait until dark. That was a long answer, but that's the play. That's the one that's to just wet your feet. One. Was it wet your feet or wet It's your a toe? great date play. It's a great, you know, escape play. It's got great acting, great story, great design, special effects, dead bodies. Mm-hmm. What do you want? You know, and ticket perfect. goer or excuse me, theater goers can buy single tickets or season tickets. Correct? That's right. Yeah. So maybe if it's your first time. Mm-hmm. Grab a single ticket, a single ticket. come in, check yep. it out, and then immediately go buy a season pass. Yeah, you know, I, w- I wouldn't mind just for a second giving a shout out to our subscribers because um, there are 5,000 of them, and they really are what ensures uh, the future of every man. Mm-hmm. So these are people that did exactly that. They came and they saw a play on a single ticket they might have seen two plays on a single ticket and then they realize well wait a minute now if I commit to seeing all the plays in the season then I'm going to get a discount and I'm going to get the ultimate flexibility 
So once they realize that they can switch their tickets around pretty freely mm-hmm. um, when life happens and things come up, you know, as long as you give us a little notice, like a day, mm-hmm. two days, you know, you can call the box office and say, ooh, that day doesn't work for me. Can I move the ticket? No problem. If you buy a single ticket and life happens, no refund. So the discovery of that flexibility and not only that, but what happens is you start to hear from other people who do subscribe that I've heard this a million times. The play I was least looking forward to ended up being my favorite in the mm-hmm. season. It's about if you cherry pick the ones that you think you'll be interested in, you, you're nine times out of ten, you're going to lose out the, uh, on the opportunity of the surprise, which happens all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we sort of, you know, only like certain things as we only Got pick to broaden them, your right? horizons. It, yeah. And it's, it's, it forces you to get out and have a social evening with people and put the phone down and the technology away and have a fun sort of human interaction that. Well, there's a the romance enjoyable. in going to the theater and having yeah, a cocktail right. intermission. And I mean, there's, yeah. I don't think dates are like that very much anymore. I think Absolutely. It's- and, you know, we go out to dinner or we do the same things on our limited spare time. But but when you go to the theater, you can literally visit another continent, meet a different people, you know, hear a story you didn't expect to hear. You can laugh. You can cry. You can have an experience mm-hmm. about life that's really kind of rare. Yeah. It's kind of rare. So we we find that we don't have to work very hard to sell subscribers, fortunately, because um, I think, you know, most people when they come and they have a good time, they're like, yeah, I, I'd like to make this part of my my existence, my mm-hmm. cultural life, my, you know, it's six times a year. It's great. Right. It's really great. You can handle it six yep. times a year. So to buy tickets to find out about this season, go to everymantheater.org. Everyman. That's theater with an R-E, the British way. I was Everyman. wondering mm-hmm. if it was a Britishism or if it was... So theater with an R is British, ER is American. Yeah, but, but either are okay. Okay. Yeah, no, so we like that. It's very inclusive. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the Brits never spell it ER. We spell it both ways. Okay. So sometimes we at Everyman Theater, it's always Everyman Theater, R-E. But, um, but I, you know, sometimes if I'm writing about a particularly American theater story, I might. I mean, like, like the magazine American Theater is ER, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're a little more flexible than they yeah, are. Yeah, we like, I like that. I'm not too judgmental. On, there are those who are like, oh, the RE or nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't go. Um, yeah. But I, I do want to say, you asked me about what's the sort of best, uh, if you were going to see one play, what's the best one. That That is one. But uh, I, I do want to say that one of the things that's nice about Everyman is that when I curate seasons, I really do try to do a wide range of styles of plays. So... Um, so, like, the second play is this, I found this young playwright, I, you know, I don't even know her age, but she's definitely under 30, and she's so fabulous, Jen Silverman. I've now seen three of her plays, and if you didn't tell me who the playwright was, I would have no idea. They are so vastly different from each other. But when I saw this one at the Humana Festival, I knew I had to bring it to every man. She looked around her, and she said, where are the good roles for women in their 50s? And it's a really good question, and you know Hollywood or, or the theater. And so she said, you know, I'm going to write one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she wrote this play about these two women in the fifties, and it turns out it's one of the. It's a hilariously funny comedy. It's kind of like a Thelma and Louise meets 
in their 50s, right? So you have this woman in Iowa who has had this really sheltered life and she had the social pact with her husband. Uh, She was with him for 25 years and he suddenly left her for a younger woman and she has a grown son who's out of the nest. She talks to 10 times a day on the phone and she has no life and she's like bored stiff. Mm -hmm. So she puts an ad in the paper for a roommate. And this woman shows up from the Bronx, a vegan from the Bronx, who turns out to be on the run. And as she discovers, she's a con artist. And so they come from such different Mm -hmm. worlds. Well, she hasn't lived life, so she wants to learn the con. And then the next thing you know, she's doing the con, Mm -hmm. and they're making a ton of money. (laughs) And she's smoking dope and listening (laughs) to music. And she has this sort of, you know, awakening in life. That is so exciting to see. It's like watching, you know, watching um, uh, a coming-of-age story of a woman in her 50s. And you think, oh, my God, Jen, the playwright, has discovered that there is now a character that is this woman. That we know so many women who have had the rug pulled out from under them Mm -hmm. after 25 years of that when, when they suddenly are in their 50s looking at this is not the way life was supposed to go. I have lived my life in service to my husband and my child. And, and what, what, what have I got, mm-hmm. right? I've got nothing at the end. So, But Jen does it in a way that is hilariously funny and um, just a delight to watch. You know, the next one up is, is another comedy. These are two hot new playwrights. This one's Coleman Domingo. Uh, people know him also as an actor in Fear the Walking oh, Dead. Um, we need to wrap in like two or three minutes. Okay, just great. To, they have it scheduled out. Oh, gotcha, so gotcha, They'll already gotcha. saw this, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's a very, uh, very funny comedy set in Philadelphia of a black family that is struggling with their mom. They're coming home for the holidays. It's a comedy about a woman um, who's got early signs of Alzheimer's. And the kids are grown children that come home for the holidays and they're in total denial. And they fight about how to deal with mom. It's a comedy. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you, like, fall out of your chair laughing funny comedy uh, with layers and layers and layers of life and seriousness underneath but really sets out to be a comedy is a comedy Mm -hmm. ends a comedy that will touch your heart it will make your Christmas this play and it's it's set at the Christmas time. I think that's one of my favorite kind of stories. Is when because <sighs> the, the layers of families and the complications and intricacies, oh, yeah. everybody experiences that. That is just broadly a human experience. I, oh, but it is so funny. Good. I mean, it's heartbreaking and sad at times, but it is funny. Do you know that uh, five of the plays that hit New York in a big way this year were all about dementia? People dealing with parents that have really dementia. yeah. I didn't. It's it, it, there's something in the air, and I think it's because a lot of the baby boomers are are, are feeling it, and their yeah. kids are witnessing it, and so the young writers are writing about it. It's a big. It's it's become a big, a lot of fodder for drama. Sad to say. Yeah. And, and were the, those were dramas? They weren't. Yeah, they were dramas. Comedies, the humans yeah. and the father, and yeah, really serious dramas. Um, this is a comedy, uh, but pointing to an important issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are great. And, and then, we, you know, we have the revivals like Wait Until Dark, and we have one of the best called The Noise, Noises Off at the end of the season, which is 
hilariously funny, a sort of backstage comedy about a traveling theater company. And of course, we have our resident theater company, so people that know and love our resident company, watching them behave, it's like um, uh, actors that are doing a play and everything that can go wrong does Mm -hmm. go wrong. So, And then all their backstage relationships and affairs start coming into play, and then they want to kill each other on stage, but it's a comedy. It's it's very, very funny. But then underneath of all of that, these are actually people who work together in the way that they do in the play, but in real life. Absolutely. It's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and the only other play that we haven't talked about is probably one of the most exciting, which is Great Expectations. Six actors playing 36 roles. It's incredible. One actor plays Pip through the whole story. Okay. But everybody else plays like seven or eight characters. And, you know, it's one of the world's great masterpieces, and it's done in the most theatrical, smart, young, savvy uh, adaptations I've ever seen. It's really great. Well, there you go. Theater recommendations from the man himself. Come, please. Yes. Well, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Meg. All right.